Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I was awakened in the middle of the night. I was fully awakened. So I was sitting up in my bed. The street lights were coming through our fifth floor window. I could hear the elevated subway line outside and down the street. So I was fully awake and I knew something or someone was in my room. I looked around and I saw a very large incandescent psychedelically colored butterfly flying all around my room. And I just sat there in wonder and watched it in wonder and awe. So I learned that there is a spiritual world, that it wants to communicate with us. I have no idea, had no idea then, and I still am in the mystery of it. How did the spirit butterfly choose this little kid from a Bronx tenement apartment and pick him? But it did. And I've been following that butterfly my whole life. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On today's episode, I welcome depth psychotherapist, author, and journey guide, Edward Tick, to the podcast. Ed has been working to heal the invisible wounds of war and violent trauma for over 40 years, and he's led healing pilgrimages to Greece and Vietnam for the past 20. He has published many books and articles on healing veterans' PTSD, including the award-winning War in the Soul, and his 2001 book, The Practice of Dream Healing, is a classic in depth psychology 
It offers the most comprehensive modern account of ancient Asclepian dream healing practices and the Western origins of medicine and psychotherapy and their applications to holistic healing today. Trauma specialist Peter Levine calls Ed's audio program, Warrior's Return, Restoring the Soul After War, a quote, masterpiece from one of our wisest elders for understanding the complex dimensions of war trauma. I've been wanting to have a conversation on the podcast about dreams and dream work for a while now, but I really wanted to wait until I could talk to Ed. His book, The Practice of Dream Healing, is one of my favorite books on dreams. It introduced me to the ancient practice of Asclepian dream healing, which shares a lot of parallels to the healing traditions of yoga and South American shamanism, both of which have played a big part in my own healing journey. Finding similar practices at the roots of Western culture feels both soul-affirming and like a kind of homecoming. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you, and I'm sure you'll be touched as much as I was by Ed's heartfelt sincerity, his humanity, and deep compassion and care for veterans and other survivors of war. You can find out more about Ed and his work by visiting edwardtick.com. And please, if you appreciate this conversation, check out the podcast archives and consider becoming a supporter, even if it's just for a month or two. You can find out more about how to do that at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Edward Tick on the medicine path. I'm here with Dr. Edward Tick. And uh, Ed, I got to tell you, I'm really excited to speak with you because I wanted to talk about dreams on the podcast for quite a while, but I really wanted to wait for you. Um, As we were talking before recording your 2001 book, Practice of Dream Healing, it's probably my favorite book on dreams because I really love the way that you combine the history of dream healing in ancient Greece with stories of modern day dream healings that you've facilitated and witnessed over the years. So it's a great honor and I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks a lot. You're very welcome, Brian, and back at you. Thank you. I'm honored to be with you as well. And I love what you're doing, um, mapping out the soul's journey, offering, this is so important individually facilitated and designed medicine journeys for people. We both affirm one size does not fit all, and that's one of the problems with the modern medical system. Uh, And so we really have to know our people and help them find the right journeys and the right medicine for them. So I'm very excited to talk with you. And yeah, uh, we both affirm how profound, how spiritually based archetypal dreams and dream work can be. and Uh, how they're having a hard time in the modern world. And uh, some of us are working to bring that depth of wisdom back. So very excited to speak with you as well. Thanks. Yeah, great. I think maybe the best place to begin or the place that I like to start with everyone, um, you know, really interested in 
people's medicine paths. It's the name of the podcast. And I see the medicine path as each individual's journey of learning, healing, and growing throughout their lifetime. So I'm really interested to hear how you first became interested in dreams and and healing with dreams. Thank you for that question. And um, you can't see it, but I've got shivers up and down my spine right now because your question immediately brings me back to my early childhood and my first initiation by the spirit world onto this path, such that I've had to understand and learn from it and make sense of it for 65 years now. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I really am, I'm happy to share this. Uh, it's really precious personal information, but you and I have both discovered that when we invite people to share their dreams, share any mystical or spiritual or visionary experiences they might have had through the life cycle. A lot more people have had them than we realize and then know, and they usually don't even feel safe or permission to talk about these non-rational matters. So I do, you do, and so I'm going to jump right in with my first experiences. Yeah, please don't hold back. Our audience is, uh, they're up to speed by now, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we really need to be not only bringing this wisdom back for the general public, but especially sharing it with others who have been initiated. So we, we we have a tribe. Yeah, let them know that they're not alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you. Here we, so here we go. All right. So I am 70 years old. I was born in the Bronx, uh, in the Southeast Bronx, which uh, I was born in there while it was deteriorating. And that's what, for people who know the old movies, my section of the Bronx became what was called Fort Apache. They, um, so really violent street life. And in fact, I was had to be in the street gang. I was in some gang fights before I even got to, to kindergarten. Hmm. Just part of the way of life. Living there. Um, this is my initiation into shamanism in the archetypal world. Two events. When I was four years old, uh, we lived in a tiny tenement apartment. My parents slept on a couch in the living room. I had a baby brother at that age. I'm the oldest. So I was four. He was in his crib. We shared a tiny closet-sized bedroom. His crib was under the window. My little bed was against the wall. I was awakened in the middle of the night. I was fully awakened. So I was sitting up in my bed. The streetlights were coming through our fifth-floor window. I could hear the elevated subway line outside and down the street. So I was fully awake and I knew something or someone was in my room. I looked around and I saw a very large incandescent, psychedelically colored butterfly flying all around my room. And I just sat there in wonder and watched it in wonder and awe. And then I made what I consider one of the significant early mistakes of my life. I called my parents. Hmm. (laughs) You understand? (laughs) (laughs) They came running into the room. What's wrong? What's wrong? 
I said, nothing's wrong. There's a big, beautiful butterfly in my room. My father just grunted and turned on his heels and walked, went back to bed. Hmm. He'd worked very hard. He was almost a slave. So I forgive him, but wish he could have talked. And my mother said, even worse, my mother said, oh, it's just a nightmare. Go back to shut up and go back to sleep. I said, it's not a nightmare. It's a beautiful dream or vision. And I've been watching this butterfly. My mother said, no, it was a nightmare. Sometimes nightmares fool us. And we think we're still, we think we're awake and we're really still dreaming. So shut up and go back to sleep. So I learned that there is a spiritual world. Hmm. I learned that it wants to communicate with us. I have no idea, had no idea then, and I still am in the mystery of it. How did the spirit butterfly choose this little kid from a Bronx tenement apartment and pick him? But it did. And I've been following that butterfly my whole life. Hmm. I also learned, be really careful who you talk to. Yeah. If they don't know and they're not initiated, they're going to crush the vision. So um, I didn't talk about that again. I don't you know for till I was an adult, um, and there were there were no shamans or wonder-working rabbis or priests that I knew of in my Bronx neighborhood. Nobody was talking about this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but let's share with our friends listening out there. Of course, I didn't know it at the time, and I expect a lot of people don't know it, but the word for butterfly in ancient Greek is psyche, the same as the word for soul. Hmm. Psyche in Greek, but spelled the way we spell it, psyche. And the ancients pictured the soul as a spirit butterfly that dwells in us and is released on our um, physical death. Hmm. So I didn't know it at the time, but I've been, I was called to follow the soul and I've been following that butterfly my whole life and doing everything I can with all of the challenges we all face to stay true to that original vision. So at four years old, I was called first. Hmm. Still in the Bronx, two years later, uh, three weeks before my sixth birthday, my grandmother died. Uh, she had a sad, horrible uh, death. Um, we- Never even uh, received a diagnosis at the time. She was just sent from the hospital to die. And uh, I was with her by her deathbed. So I remember that. I remember her love. A couple of weeks, I don't know how long, a couple of days or a couple of weeks after she died, I had my first, well, my second big dream. A butterfly was my first. And I hope everybody out there knows Jung's distinction between little dreams and big dreams we assume they do well maybe for people who haven't read up on Jung, uh if you could talk about how he distinguished the big dreams from the little dreams that would be great sure thank you um pretty easy to our friends out there little dreams are most of the dreams we have most of the time that are personal that are from the level of the personal unconscious or recycling our daily lives or working out our our present life issues. Little, so little dreams are personal and more familiar. Big dreams are rare. They feel numinous. They have heavy-duty archetypal imagery. We may be seeing a spiritual vision coming in dream time. Or we are when we get a big dream. 
Mm -hmm. And it could be a dream that's reflecting something more of the collective unconscious. So it might not even be particularly relevant to you personally, but could be relevant to someone else or the world at large, right? Uh, yes. And I'm glad you said that because uh, when we are on the dream healing path, we also realize we can, we do dream for other people. So we, we can channel dreams that are meant for wisdom or healing for others. And we do dream for the collective. And right now, the world is uh, being drenched in an apocalyptic dream imagery. And that's being re reported from all over the world. Mm -hmm. So the times we are on now, we are in an apocalypse. It is a repeated social, historical, spiritual event in the history of civilizations. This one may be worse because we really do have the power to destroy life on the planet. Um, so we're in even more danger than previous apocalypses, if that's the plural. Mm -hmm. um, now you're talking about your grandmother and this big dream. Right. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me back to my big dream. Uh, so numinous and for the collective and for others, not just ourselves. And with imagery we may or may not recognize is profoundly archetypal, but it is, and it radiates down into our depths, way below our personal uh, psychology. So a couple, a short time after my grandmother died, I had a dream. The dream was in the Bronx in that same apartment building where I saw the butterfly. In the dream, my family and I were in an empty lot next to the building, and I heard someone ring our doorbell. And I told my family, and again, my Father didn't say anything, and my mother laughed and made fun of me, just like it happened. Just like in real life. Right, just like in real life. But my mother did say, yeah, think somebody's at our door, so run around uh, to, and, and look. So I ran to the front of the apartment building. We lived on the fifth floor. I got to the front of the apartment building. This is still in the dream. I looked up, and I saw my grandmother's spirit. She looked like a young woman. Um, like a dressed in Eastern European garb with beautiful, long, flowing, curly hair. And she was flying out of our apartment building, waving, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Mm. And I watched her leave. Again, major life lessons. The soul survives the body. The soul can communicate to us from the spirit world. Once again, I was the only one in my family in my neighborhood who was, who was going to see this. <laughs> um, yeah, um, it looked to me, you know, I was, I was, my grandmother died in her 50s. I was on her deathbed. She really was used up, really shrunken and nothing, no, no vitality left. But in the dream, she was beautiful and young and vital. And so... We don't know what's on the other side. It but sure gave me the promise of her spiritual well-being after her physical death and her illness, and that there is spiritual restoration of some form for us all, uh, mm. and to work for and believe in that. So that dream and that vision, by the time I was six, two big dreams, teaching me there was a spirit world and 
they were so compelling that I've been studying and practicing these ways and following them my whole life. And also to our, for our other friends out there, and you too. These visits make us weird. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> In the old meaning, <laughs> magic. We are weird brothers and weird sisters, the way Shakespeare used the weird sisters. Um, they separate us from the mainstream and the ordinary and tell us there's a, an archetypal or spiritual world that is the basis of this one. And when we wake up to it, we have to follow it. So I have been, and uh, and my work is very much informed by these early experiences I had. Mm. Yeah, like you, um, early on, I had uh, really a wild dream life and uh, nobody to talk to about it, nobody to help me understand them. Um, But uh, I can also attest to what happens when we uh, try to suppress that calling or the visionary part of our life and conform to mainstream society. I, I tried to do that for over a decade working in uh, design and advertising, um, you know, cut my hair short and clean shaven and all of that, trying to fit in and make a life for myself, you know, kind of conventional life. And uh, it, all it brought me was misery. So one of the things I try to offer now on the other side of that, you know, on the other side of my midlife crisis at 47 now is to encourage younger people to stay with that, to stay with the dream, keep following the dream, because disregarding it, suppressing it, denying it, isn't going to bring you happiness and contentment and joy and inspiration. Uh, It may be the harder path to follow the dream and follow the call of being a mystic or a visionary or a weirdo, but it's what will eventually, I think, bring everyone uh, most satisfaction and fulfillment in life. I'm with you. Um, we say because we work so hard on it and we help others that it may be the harder path, but I don't think so. I Both paths are hard. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. you know, different ways. Yeah. And uh, Thoreau was right. The masses live lives of quiet desperation. When we squat, crush the spirit, we do experience life as empty, despair-invoking, alienating. Uh, we may not know our purpose. You spent a decade not following your purpose. That helped you get on your road and really be true to your purpose. And yeah, we should really be nurturing young people to follow their dream, follow their purpose, live meaningful lives, find your spiritual path rather than conform and fit in. You may, may maybe you'll make money. That's getting less and less true. You will yeah. definitely be oppressed. We are all, we live a version of slavery now. It's a very, very comfortable version. So we don't even realize how controlled we are, but there really isn't freedom there. And certainly not spiritual aliveness. And we should also always remind our listeners, if you suppress or crush or inhibit these energies, you're not going into neutral. You're hurting yourself. And the energies suppressed will look for another form of expression that might be more troublesome or dysfunction. So it's no accident that in a culture like ours that is pretty much bereft of spirit, people by the millions and millions are hooked on spirits. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We go yeah. to those substances be- to try to give ourselves some real experience of uh, inhibited spirituality. Yeah. I, I, I tell people that a lot who are dealing with um, alcohol addiction in themselves or in other people that they love, that it's, uh, you know, the way Jung thought about it is just like a confusing of the spirits. Like you're reaching for the spirit, but you're reaching for the wrong one. You're confused and you're reaching for this literal spirit that may get you a little high, uh, but won't bring you uh, what you're looking for, right? Right. Temporarily out of pain and maybe having fun. Um, Pindar, the ancient Greek poet, called alcohol. Um, it was, uh, well, the best common medicine humanity has against despair. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. But like any medicine, it's all in the dose. And if you drink right. too much, it's just going to bring more despair. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you invoked uh, Pindar and the Greeks, because my next question was, okay, so at age six, you felt this calling, but you're in in Fort Apache Bronx back in the 50s and early 60s. How do you find your way to the Greeks? What was your first introduction to the Greek world? Oh, we're still in childhood then. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll catch up. Um, We've only got 70 years to cover, my friend. <laughs> this was also like, well, it was also it, another non-normative experience that could count as a big dream given to me in a different way. So grow, we moved from the Bronx to Queens, New York City. Moving on up. <laughs> right. <laughs> we can sing that song about it, too. What a joke. <laughs> my 10th birthday. Growing up in New York City at the time, a child could get his adult library card on his 10th birthday. I had spent a lot of time in the library, like you. Yeah, me too. Looking up what nobody would talk about. Mm -hmm. So after school that day, I couldn't wait to run to the library. I remember it was a cool, rainy day, and I didn't care. As soon as I was out of school, I turned toward the library instead of toward home. And I pretended I was John Hancock when I, I remember signing my name for the first time and trying to make it look impressive. And then I went up to the adult floor of my local library and I was just wandering the stacks and I had no idea. What's going to be my first adult library book to bring home? Is it going to be history or literature or nature studies or whatever? I had no idea. And I was just wandering the stacks and I was in between two freestanding floor-to-ceiling stacks. And again, I have no idea how it happened, but I looked up and a big book fell off an upper shelf and landed in my hand. (laughs) It was large, red leather bound, and it was the Iliad. (laughs) And I just said, I don't know who you are or who pushed you into my hand, but you look amazing, and there were really good pen and ink drawings. Ten-year-old boy looking at Greek warriors said, "I don't know who you are, but we're going home together." And um, and so, really, at ten, I devoured the Iliad, and I fell in love with uh, with Greece and the Greek tradition, mythology, and literature, and everything. And so, I began studying it. Literally, began studying it then. Hmm. 
so there too was a mysterious initiation. There was nobody else around, and I don't know how that book fell, but synchronicity, it did, and here we are. <laughs> mm. Yeah, maybe your butterfly diamond just uh, fluttered its wings and sent it your way. Oh, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> another, oh, another uh, definition of the butterfly effect you just gave us. Thank ah, you. yeah. Well, it's definitely rippled forward in the past 60 some odd years into, you know, who you are and the work that you do now. Um, okay, so it's one thing to discover the Greeks. You know, when I was a kid, I remember the uh, illustrated Greek myth books and those mm -hmm. old uh, Harryhausen films like Jason and the Argonauts with all the stop motion animation, like kind of amazing stuff. But it's another thing to discover Asclepios and the dream healing tradition of Greece. It took me another 40 years before, you know, through you and people like Steve Eisenstadt to find out about the Asclepian mm -hmm. dream healing. And once I did, I felt like there was uh, yogic and shamanic roots to the Western culture that my people come from. And I felt like a great sense of homecoming and uh, affirmation and all of that. So how, how did you come to it? Was it another uh, mystical uh, prodding? <laughs> well, it actually was. It actually was. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, so, all right. So I was, I was studying the Greek tradition my entire life, uh, but I didn't get there. Uh, first time in 1984 uh, with my wife. Uh, we went there on our honeymoon. I just a really sweet, quick story. My wife and I were planning our marriage and we were going to talk about the honeymoon. And she started to ask, she said, so have you thought about where? And I knew the rest of the question and I just blurted grace <laughs> before she could even ask the question where we should go. So, um, and I could, I did have some extraordinary breakthrough experiences then in 84, but I began working with our veterans right after the end of the Vietnam War. So that the war ended in 1975. I began working with our veterans about then. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder was not even a modern diagnosis until 1980. And right. And so at, by 75, were you already a psychotherapist or counselor? Uh, I was just starting. Uh, I got I finished my master's degree in psychology in 1975. I moved to a central part of New York State uh, and was invited into uh, medical practice there. So I was working on my doctorate and a young psychotherapist. Hmm. Yeah, really young. Really young, yeah. So I was, where are we? 19th, oh, well, yeah, I was in my late 20s then. Yeah, and so I guess you avoided the draft somehow. You don't have to get uh, well, into it. <laughs> I actually, that's a really important part of the story too. Okay, so for everybody out there who might be younger, during the Vietnam War, we had a draft. We have not had a draft since then. And if any of our younger veterans are listening, bless you. There is spiritual and shamanic uh, and mystical warrior paths throughout the millennia for you to follow. Please do. Please talk to Brian or me or somebody like us, because warriors are central to the shamanic journey. Uh, not They were not left out. Only our culture does that. So, okay. Um, 
so how did I get to Asclepius? How did I, and how did I bring Asclepius to? Yeah, to we're it? backtracking a bit and talking how about. Did I, how did I get involved? I, I I was not drafted. Yes, okay, Vietnam. I went to college in 1968. The war, the Vietnam War, was at a height. Uh, for my first year, there was there was a student deferment while you were in college. The deferments were so controversial and the draft was so unfair, taking mostly um, poor, minority, uh, rural, disenfranchised people, taking them to Vietnam and getting them killed in larger numbers. And so the next year, the, the uh, deferment was done away with and a lottery system was created where the government pulled our birthdays out of a hat. And whichever number you got, that's when you were going to Vietnam. Um, I was actually in the second lottery because I went to college a year younger. I was, couldn't wait to get out of the house. So mm. I went to college at 17. So um, I had to, I was applying for conscientious objector because I saw the war, war was hideously immoral and wrong. I had determined if I had to serve, I would only, I could go as a medic. I would go to try to be a healer in that hell. Um, and that was it. Uh, so as it turns out, my lottery number in that second drawing was 244. And I never had to serve. Hmm. And I, I, with that higher number, I wasn't even in danger. Like the first third of the birthdays all served. The second third, maybe depending on how many bodies the military needed. And then the, the last third was were pretty free. So I didn't have to do anything. And a lot of my generation just said, good, I'm out of here. A lot of people quit college. They were only there for the deferment. Um, <laughs> people took other paths. I felt like that was what we today call a moral injury, that mm -hmm. the entire war was a moral injury to the whole nation, to the entire generation, and the way who was serving and how we were fighting each other uh, was all disgusting, morally injurious. So I was glad I didn't have to go. And I also felt something's wrong with this picture. I'm not going to have to serve. I'm not going to have to give anything. I'm not going to have to sacrifice anything. I get a free pass in life when other people are killing and being killed. That's wrong. And I also really believe in the necessity for rites of passage, especially for our youth. Um, definitely not necessarily the military, but some form of service where we give to, to the nation and the world for what we've been given and we mature through that that life is not only about us that we're here to help each other hmm. so i wanted to find some form of service and it didn't then back to 1975 the war ended that year i moved to a rural part of new york state where there are lots of veterans a lot from new york city where i my hometown a uh, hiding in the countryside and a lot of rural veterans because the rural areas always give us more. And there I am only in my mid to late 20s, and they started to come into my therapy practice. Mm. Colleagues and friends said, get away from them. They're crazy and they're dangerous and you're going to get hurt. That's not at all how I felt. I felt like, oh, my God. Our wandering brothers are struggling to find their way home. Now maybe I can serve. Mm. So I began working with our vets then, like five years before PTSD was even a diagnosis. Wow. And um, 
began learning with them and working with them and from them and considering working with them my initiation into the war zone. I really am grateful to the gods that I didn't have to go there and be there in the war. And I'm also grateful to the gods that they chose me for this work and taught me imaginally, archetypally, what war is and what war does. So I didn't have to be in danger of killing or being killed, but I could really get a very full, intense spiritual and emotional impact and learn what it was like. And by now, having got doing this work for 40 years, more than 40 years, and with veterans from every war, um, the veterans consider me a veteran, and I've been initiated as an honorary veteran many times. And so there's not even a name for people who serve in between the veterans and the civilians. We're not civilians. We've been changed. Just like you're mm -hmm. not an ordinary civilian because you're initiated in the spirit world. Uh, we don't have a title for a person like me who's halfway in between the civilian and the veteran world being a bridge to bring them all together, but I am. Well, I think the word is healer. I mean, to heal means to make whole or to rejoin, right? And uh, that's what you're talking about is being the in-between um, and being a force for healing, letting the, you know, yeah, letting it work through you and this work. Um, I just want to pause here for a second and ask what your orientation was as a therapist when you were starting out. Who were you influenced by? What school uh, did you belong to? Great. Thank you. Great question. Um, I started reading Freud and Jung in high school on my own. <laughs> Nobody was teaching that stuff. A little light reading. Yeah, right. Um, and then when I got to college, I declared myself a psychology major before I took any courses. That's what I was interested in depth psychology, like you, like our colleagues. And then all I had were experimental psychology courses. Yeah. Mm. Um, so really, I only took two psychology courses in as an undergrad. They were so empty and boring and just replicating experiments. And I did independent study with humanists on my campus studying the depth psychologists and my very best mentor this is also significant as an undergraduate professor harry staley was a world war ii combat veteran we did a lot of independent study we together we read the studied the books he read in the foxholes to keep himself sane during combat in world war ii and we went really deeply into the depth psychologists together as well as the humanists and philosophy and literature. So um, I was profoundly uh, humanistically and archetypally oriented from my childhood experiences and my own early studies um, before I ever got to mainstream psychology. So as soon as I was in the educational system, I started to reject that and gravitate toward depth psychology. And uh, like many of us have had to find an alternative path and alternative teachers and guides um, to not be captured by mainstream conventional psychology, but continue to develop uh, the spiritual depths. Yeah, it's uh, definitely true in my case. And, you know, my own long and winding road 
led me to yoga and shamanism, you know, looking for healing, but looking also to understand experiences that I had when I was younger and eventually finding my way to depth psychology, you know, at last, lastly, when I started to work with people and, and realized I needed more understanding and training to help support them in their own psycho-spiritual journey. Um, and it was only until I found uh, depth psychology that I found a, a framework or an understanding that could hold all of the kind of wild, spiritual, mystical experiences that I'd had. So I wonder if it was like that for you, that when you encountered Jung and Freud, uh, particularly Jung, I would think, did you um, find like a home to to understand and engage with those uh, mystical experiences you'd had? Yeah, uh, yes, and I'll add not only the depth psychologist, but at the time, especially in the '60s, the humanistic psychology movement was also very strong and important as well. Uh, so Jung and his followers in that school were encouraging us to think learn, explore archetypally, and even more than explore, experience. We should always stress to our people that this is about experience, not analytics. Yeah. Even though it's called analytic psychology, if you're only thinking, well, Jung said, if, it doesn't, if you don't feel it in your body, it hasn't happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, But also the humanistic psychologists, so Rollo May and Eric Fromm, and uh, Progoff, and we could go down that whole list. Uh, the existential psychologists from Europe, um, Bean Swanger and Heidegger and all of those, the people who were really exploring in depth what it means to be a human being. And I really affirm that I've gotten much more from the humanities than modern psychological and social sciences in understanding us and how we work and finding the wisdom that's useful for helping people uh, grope toward their wholeness. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, once I came around to discovering depth psychology and realizing that I was pretty well equipped to work with people and that I really enjoyed it, um, I you know I I wanted to go legit, right? So I start looking at uh, psychology courses. You know, I went to music college, but I dropped out of that. I went to art school, but I dropped out of that. So I don't have any real kind of post-secondary formal education, um, very much autodidactic, I guess, but I'm always learning from other people. So I can't claim to be uh, self-taught in anything, <laughs> uh, but maybe self-guided in my study. Mm -hmm. um, but once I started to look at these uh, university psychology courses, you know, the first things that were on the agenda were like uh, stats and all this kind of stuff. And it just turned me off to such a degree because what I was interested in was like what you said, what makes us human? What, what makes us tick? How do we deal with suffering? How do we uh, understand life? Uh, how do we incorporate spirituality into a psychological life? And all these questions, um, I just couldn't find it out there. And so I've had to find alternative schools that are happening usually centered around one particular teacher or another and then reading a lot of books like yours yeah yeah but jung and rollo may both said that the best education and preparation for somebody who wants to work psychology and mental health is not to study psychology first but to drench yourselves ourselves in the arts literature the humanities religious and spiritual studies so we really do understand the psyche and are 
massively equipped for any dreams and images and experiences that people bring to us. Yeah, that's the kind of ironic world really narrows the way we think and see and interpret. And it's terrible. Well, and that's kind of the ironic thing that I found out once I started to um, be mentored by people like Thomas More and, you know, after his death, James Hillman, kind of a mentor from afar. But what I realized is that my whole life, I'd been studying and training for the work that I do now, although it was completely unconscious. It was just following things that I loved and immersing myself in these topics. But yeah, I found out, wow, that gives me a really good foundation for doing deep psychological work. Mm -hmm. What we were missing in our childhood was the local shaman in our neighborhood who would have seen us as different and what we were dreaming and attracted to and studying and begun training us from childhood. Yeah, that's so true. So the spirits chose us. This is also really important. Um, It disturbs me when people, I hope I don't offend you, forgive me if I do. I don't like when people call themselves shamans. It's an election by the spirit world and by the people. Others tell us that we can do this and that we have these powers. If we claim them, we might harm our powers with hubris. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's a, I think uh, it's not a title that you can self-appoint. It has to be appointed by your community, first and foremost. And they're the ones that tell you if you're doing a good job or not. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Now, I, I don't want to get away from Asclepius. I want to really honor Asclepius and bring him into the conversation because uh He's become a really important figure for me, an archetypal figure. He has a place on my altar now, a very central place right next to Christ. And there's a lot of correlations between them. And so could you talk about, ah, there he is. That's great. Um, Both of our altars, yes. Uh, And uh, by the way, um, a lot of the statues of Asclepius from ancient Greece uh, were turned into, when Christianity took over and, and forced out paganism, a lot of the oldest statues of Asclepius were relabeled Jesus and set up in the early churches. I, I, you know, when I read that in your book, I think it's the first place I saw that, that uh, Christianity co-opted a lot of the existing uh, deity statues and images. Uh, Something clicked for me, you know, we always think like, well, some of us think like, how come Jesus is always depicted as a bearded white guy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, because what you're looking at is not an image of Jesus the Christ, but you're looking at a co-opted image of probably Asclepios. Yeah. So, so how did how did you meet Asclepius? Okay. So let's also remind our listeners that Asclepius is the god of healing. Apollo in Greece was the god of medicine. Asclepius was his son and the god of healing. And it's too bad we have to differentiate those, but we do. Mm-hmm. And so everybody out and Asclepius, one of Asclepius. One of the translations of his name is everlastingly gentle. (laughs) The doctor with the medical know-how doesn't necessarily have a good bedside manner. Make sure you get a gentle, loving practitioner. 
Mm. A son, not the father in that case. Oh, wow. Yeah. In Greek mythology, yeah. Apollo was not a warm, fuzzy. He had the wisdom, <laughs> but he was not such a nice guy. Um, <laughs> so medicine and healing. How, how did I get to Asclepius? All right. So as we no one have shared, I was studying the Greek tradition about my entire life. Um, and there's actually... There are very few books about Asclepius, and he almost doesn't appear in uh, the um, the collections of uh, mythology. Edith Hamilton, which everybody reads, that's how the people know their mythology. She only has a few sentences on him. And the dream healing tradition and, and ancient medicine and healing is not present in that collection. Uh, Freud, in the interpretation of dreams, has one sentence in one footnote saying in ancient Greece, uh, the goddess Sclepius gave people dreams and sometimes doctors use them for prognosis. That's it. He knew mm. nothing else. He didn't look any closer. All right. So, actually, the warriors got me to Asclepius, who got me back to the warriors. Hmm. And thank you. You're almost taking, creating a narrative of my, of my life's journey. So I appreciate this, you and this conversation much. And also getting a clue about how you lead some of uh, your own clients on their journeys. Good work. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Um, all right. So I was fully immersed in the Greek tradition. I was working with the warriors. I had been to Greece in 1984 for my first journey there. By the mid-80s, I was sure, really sure, that what we call PTSD was so deep and so comprehensive. It was a spiritual archetypal wound. It did penetrate and transform the soul. Um, by now, um, this came a little later, but it doesn't matter. I translate the acronym PTSD as post-traumatic soul distress. Mm and post-traumatic social disorder. Hmm. Not the individuals, but the entire society is in disorder from all of the war and destruction it causes and from not bringing the warriors home. And our, it's our souls. It's not just a stress disorder. And it's not just broken brain. Our souls are screaming their anguish. And I know you get this. We do it, both do. Um, the mainstream doesn't treat it this way. Our symptoms are what happens internally when we repress things, when we're not on our spiritual paths, and when we get the mistreated or no treatment at all. And so they turn into, what, when we squash the messages we're getting from our souls, they turn into our symptoms. So don't listen to your soul and don't give you, you what you need and your symptomatology is going to get worse. Yeah. And just to mention, like, I love etymology. It teaches us so much, I think, you know, in every word, there's like a seed of, of knowledge. And psych psychopathology, I think, means cry of the soul, basically, if you were to That's translate right. it. Right. Pathos is the cry of suffering. Exactly. And psyche is the soul. So yes, right. And in fact, all of our major psychological words come from the Asclepian tradition. Psychopathology, psychopathos, psychology psyche logos logos a beautiful greek word the order and meaning of the cosmos so psychology is the order and meaning of the soul hmm. psychiatrist yatros is 
doctor in Greek. So a psychiatrist is literally a soul doctor, not a medication dispenser. That's great. And therapy, therapeia, psychotherapeia. A therapeut was a servant or an attendant. So now I'm comfortable with that. When I say I'm a psychotherapist and I, and we translate it as a servant of the soul, yeah, that's what we are. That's great. That's yeah. great. And all that comes from the Sclepian tradition. So, well, I'm happy to share with you and our listeners that uh, in a strange way, it seems Asclepius brought me to the warriors. And the warriors brought me to Asclepius. And here's another synchronicity that was not expected, but threw open my, my life's journey and all of this work for others. So my first trip to Greece was in 1984. By then, I had been working with our veterans for going, well, eight years, 10 years. Um, knowing the Greek tradition, I decided to take a solo pilgrimage to Greece to learn all I could about their ancient citizen warrior tradition, to study it, to see if I could discover some of the practices, to see what it had to teach that we could make use of. So in 1987, I went on a solo journey and I had quite a number of breakthrough experiences there. Um, but I'll share the one that's most relevant to the warriors. Maybe I'll share two. Asclepius and the Warriors. Ah, oh, the main healing sanctuary of Asclepius is Epidavros, spelled Epidaurus in English. People see it, mm -hmm. um, but it's pronounced Epidavros. And um, it was the main Asclepian healing sanctuary. And there's a huge beautiful ancient theater there that is still used every summer for um for uh ancient theater festival it seats fourteen thousand people it's beautiful it's got perfect acoustics nothing electric just nobody still science can't discover how it has fourteen thousand people could have perfect sound when you just wow. whisper on the stage anyway <laughs> I went for opening night in 1987. The play in performance that night was The Trojan Women by Euripides. For those who don't know it, uh, everybody should see this play. Um, it is possibly the greatest anti-war play ever written. Hmm. Euripides was a general in the Athenian army. He was in despair over the Peloponnesian Wars and how Athens and Sparta were destroying each other and destroying everything of value about Greek culture at the time. Uh, he wrote this play as a protest against um, Athens' immoral behavior during the Peloponnesian War. The play shows it's the story of the Trojan women, the end of the Trojan War after the Greeks have won and they're devastating the city. All the men are dead and they're taking the women and children off to be slaves and they're burning the city. And you see everybody's suffering. Every war wound we have um, in the, the agony of incredible Greek poetry. So uh, we are, they're screaming their, their war wounds out. And we were taught, that's by Aristotle, and it's still true that... Uh, 
Tragic theater can achieve catharsis, which is the purging of our negative emotions and can cleanse us of catharsis and release us from old pain and shame and guilt and anger and grief that we carry. So I saw the Trojan women that night in that sanctuary. Uh, I talked to the actress who played the lead, Hecuba, the Queen of Troy. Several times during the play, she screamed the word anathema, which is ancient Greek, but that's English isn't that well now, from the core of her soul. I'd never heard a human sound like that before. Mm. Oh, God. I can still, I shudder remembering it, feeling it in my body. And I talked to her, how did you dig that deeply into yourself to pull that out? And she said, it only took me 25 years to learn how to do this, to release that much from my core. I was different. I went into that theater performance thinking of myself as a psychotherapist for Vietnam veterans, looking, researching how ancient Greece helped heal its warriors. Hmm. I came out of that sanctuary. Uh uh. War is archetypal. It is an archetype. It's always the same. The weapons and the uniforms are different, but what war is and what war does and how war impacts people is always the same, all times and all places. And Vietnam was my generation's archetype or expression of the archetype, not it's the, the, the war itself. The war itself is war. And, um, and I was not only called to be working with Vietnam veterans, but to do everything I can to help us heal from war, from mm -hmm. all wars, anytime, any place. Uh, so I have worked with veterans from um, just every American war known and unknown um, since uh, the Spanish Civil War and children of World War I veterans. And I am working with people and we're in Iraq and Afghanistan now and people, our culture thinks we're still not, we're not at war because we're out of Afghanistan and that's wrong. We have, for everybody out there, we have troops in 140 countries around the world and we have secret wars going on, black ops going on right now. So this country's always at war. Anyway, um, I came out of that sanctuary, um, changed. Uh, I, we call it moral injury now. Back then, I remember feeling, oh, this was 1987. Our veterans experienced moral inversion. Good becomes evil, evil becomes good. Healing becomes killing, saving becomes killing. It's all completely mixed up and confused. And we really are profoundly mis misguided, mistrained um, in understanding war and warriors. The Greeks and Escapius have a path for understanding it. My own moral injury was significantly healed in that experience. And that was the first, my first real encounter with Asclepius. From then I said, why is there a theater in this ancient healing sanctuary and how did they use it? And I asked folks then, we don't know, they staged tragedies here. No, they didn't stage tragedies here. As it turns out, there was a theater in every Asclepian sanctuary. And by now we know there were over 320 of them all over the Mediterranean world, not just in Greece, but north. I've been to Bulgaria 
and visited theirs. There were some on the northern coast of Africa. They went as far east as Egypt and as far west as the Iberian Peninsula. The entire Mediterranean world had them and used them. And warriors, not ex ex exclusively, but use them extensively. Uh, so this first introduction that caused a profound catharsis and identity shift in me, I thought, well, this is one of the ways they did it. More research. We learned that all the Greek tragedians, Aeschylus, and Euripides were all combat veterans. Almost every one of the Greek tragedies is about war or, and, and or violence. And the, the guilt is portrayed, the furies are portrayed, what we call PTSD is vividly portrayed in those plays and clues for how to release it and heal ourselves from it are all vividly portrayed there. Uh, and beyond that, of course, I began intensely researching the Asclepian tradition. I was brought to this sanctuary. I had a healing experience that changed my identity. They had theater here. There have to be reasons all this is knitted together. I'd better learn all I can about this God. Mm. So from 1987, I began not just Greek studies, but really, really intensive studies of the Asclepian tradition and exactly how it was used. Mm. So that by now, um, I've been to Greece uh, about... 22 times, and I've traveled all over and visited, uh, I don't know, uh, well, oh, probably 15 or 20 different sanctuaries, both the well-known ones and some completely off the beaten path that many Greeks don't even know about, that take uh, hours of hiking to get to, but when we're there and we have them to ourselves, what a day of healing practice mm. we can have. You, if you haven't been you know it and feel it also. Um, and just finishing this, so mm -hmm. the core of Asclepian healing practice was what was called incubation, dream incubation. Uh, it's similar to Native American vision questing. It's a specific ritual designed to facilitate what Jung called big dreams, dreams or visions by which we connect to the spirit world, the spirit world connects to us, and we are given big dreams or visions that heal us directly in the dream time or tell us how to heal ourselves by giving us prescriptions for the dreaming or might be for other people or even for an entire culture. We have reports of, of those as well. Uh, and sometimes when I facilitate um, the incubations, sometimes people will dream in proxy for others, friends or loved ones who are distressed. But um, catching us up really quickly. So um, since then in 1987, uh, I began leading guided journeys to Greece in 1995 and have done it every year, more or less. Missed a couple of years, but a couple of years were twice. So I've been about 22 times and I lead journeys and I take people on dream journeys where we visit the Asclepian sites, we study the tradition. We do look for breakthrough experiences, um, such as I've been describing, not only the dreams, but we also do uh, do enchemesis in Greek. Um, we, we do intensive dream incubations where some of my groups, not all, never all, 
some people are there to support and to learn, but the people who are called to incubate do all night long incubations. Um, in ancient times, they went as long as somebody needed to stay in the sanctuary, in the clinicos. That's where our word clinic comes from too. Um, so they could go on for days in ancient times. The longest I've recall anybody staying in incubation was 16 hours. So, but they, they go all night and into the next morning. Um, and I have dozens of recordings of the big dreams that travelers had and their life stories and histories and issues and what the dream was revealing to them. Uh, so in every case of incubation, profound healing has emerged, Pro really profound healing. Sometimes things we think can't heal because they need physical intervention like surgery, sometimes they heal from the dream all by themselves. More commonly in our experience, not in the ancient world, the ancient world left many testimonies of physical healing like uh, such and such a warrior was wounded by a spear and the spear is embedded too deeply in his shoulder to operate. He slept in the sanctuary and had a dream where he saw Asclepius come to him and pour ointment in and pop the spear point out. And then we're told when he woke up, the spear point had popped out spontaneously during the dream. That's one example of many, many, many. Um, but people achieve extraordinary physical, spiritual, psychological healings through this practice. We know of thousands of them from the ancient world. You know my book, so I reported many of them. Um, and I reported um, many that I facilitated in that book as well. And in my book next year, The Future of Ancient Healing, there will be more, including... Yeah. Several chapters specifically on, on warriors. It's a chapter called Warrior Dreams, showing what specifically what their incubations are like and how they're transformative. Hmm. Let me say this, including... Yeah, I don't think you've read it yet. It's not in the earlier book. Um, Scouts of Honor, including veteran with PTSD, tortured by combat nightmares, who when we incubated had combat nightmares all night long. And when dawn came, he shot up in his bed, the sun fell on his face, and he said, I'm done, it's over. What do you mean you're done? I don't know, but I'm done, it's over and I'm empty. And this was, hold on, this was nine years ago and he hasn't had a combat nightmare since. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, really, Asclepius emptied them emptied his psyche of the tortures, memories, and images that were in there. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Ed. Um, now, I, you know, what I'd like to have you do, if you would, is I think you do such a great job of this in the book. And it's one of the things I love about the book. It's not just uh, pure scholarship, but uh, the way you write really brings the ancient uh, life around the Asclepions alive, and it brings the figures like Asclepios and Hygieia, really brings them to life. And I wonder if you could help 
paint a picture for us of what it would have been like for a pilgrim in the ancient world who is visiting the Asclepion. What was the process? What what was, uh, you know, what did the, the ritual consist of? I wonder if you could help us with that. Sure, thank you. Oh, okay, oh, well, unlike what is reported in most of our mythology books, Asclepius was very well known and greatly loved in ancient Greece. And in fact, he's the last pagan god to survive the onslaught of Christianity. So when the others were disappearing and their temples were being destroyed, he became more popular. People hung on to him, and he became a savior god, not just a healer god, which built the transition into Christianity, of course. So um, his practices, the the records we have of his practices go back to um, Thessaly from about um, 17, 1800 BC. And they lasted until the Christian era crushed them out about 580. So over 2000 years. If this tradition had lasted, we would the Western world would have a tradition as old and wise and spiritual as Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine that are also that old and that wise. Hmm. We lost it. We're trying to bring it back as we can. Uh, so Asclepius was well-known and well-loved. There was both scientific medicine and spiritual medicine. Uh, spirit, scientific medicine came later with Hippocrates. So this is about 400 BC. Hippocrates was contemporaneous with Plato and um, Aristotle. Um, and his father and his grandfather were Sclepian healers, and he grew up in uh, as an apprentice in their uh, Sclepian sanctuary on the island of Kos. Hippocrates so, was. Yeah. 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 So he was fully trained and initiated in it, but it was the Enlightenment, and so he made everything scientific. Right. But interesting to note, and I don't think most people know this, that the, the you know the grand grandfather of modern medicine, Hippocrates, was from a lineage of these spiritual healers, the Iatromantis, the healer priests, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. And they would have been called by that name. You're a healer priest. I'm not just going to a doctor. Mm -hmm. And the public would know that. So there was a principle of ancient medicine uh, to try to find human help for a human condition. And only if you can't, if it's beyond human help, then you turn it over to the gods. Like, don't bother them with the everyday stuff we can take care of. They're pretty busy up there. <laughs> so people went with war wounds, people went with tumors, people went with pregnancies that were going bad. Um, people were not allowed to give birth or to die in the sanctuaries. If a, a pregnant woman came and she was going to give birth, she would be sent out. Or sometimes hum husbands went and sat, uh, slept in proxy for their wives who were having a difficult pregnancy. Um, but what would happen? Okay, so first you would have had to try human practices and determine you really need divine help. Uh, you would travel to a sanctuary. Uh, and as we said, there were over 300 all over the uh, the Mediterranean world. So some of them were difficult to get to, and it was a big pilgrimage just to get there. 
you weren't charged when you arrived. You all the gifts were given for healings that were received afterwards. Mm. So it makes a lot of sense. Right? Uh-huh. So what do you know? Everybody medicine is free to everybody, and then you just pay in gratitude. So an emperor, Marcus Aurelius had two Asclepian cures that we know of that are in his meditations. Hmm. He gave the gift of a brand new, a new building to a sanctuary. But slaves and women, everybody was welcome. Not like our medical system. So a slave would come in and might give an apple for his or her healing. That's okay. In God's eyes, it might even be more. Mm-hmm. Which also argues for the sliding scale for all of us who are healers. Don't shut anybody out because they can't afford healing. Yeah. Value is relative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So people would arrive, not pay. They would, with their affliction, the original psychotherapists, psychotherapists were there, um, interviewing them, welcoming them, guiding them. Uh, there were... There were always holistic healing sanctuaries, such as we have now. So some of our most famous sanctuaries, like Esalen Institute or Omega Institute, they're modeled after the Escapian sanctuaries, except for the dream incubation process. They don't do it. The Greeks taught that we need holistic healing to prepare us to approach the God. Not holistic healing is going to do it for us, and then we're done. And in like what you're referring to is um, there would often be fasting, right? Bef- before incubation, you'd, you'd yes. go on a fast or uh, just eat really pure food. And uh, ritual bathing was also part of that, which I've, I've, I've bathed in the mineral waters of Esalen, yes. Not mm-hmm. always a holy experience. Sometimes lots of gossip and fun stuff. But yeah, yes. <laughs> I, could see where, I could see where they got that from. Mm-hmm. And what else uh, could be well, involved uh, in that? Most of the healing arts that we practice were practiced in the Escapia. So there was masha- mas- what we would call massage therapy. There was acupressure. Hmm. There was color therapy. People really? would, yeah. Um, I'm depressed. Uh, my therapeut put me in a yellow room. Really? Yeah. Like wow. all the walls and the ceiling and the floor. You can't be depressed. We're pouring sunlight into you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, right? that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, color therapy, uh, astrology, for sure. Um, so there were astro- astrological readings. Uh, there were artistic events all the time, concerts um, and poetry readings. Uh, the, the tragedies were used. Every single Asclepian had a theater. Even small ones in remote places had small theaters. So they used tragedy. And they used the, the expressive arts. Um, so all this was going on. So like there was like a full program happening at the Asclepion when you went. So it wasn't just right. about the your personal incubation process, but you could go and have all these other therapies. Yeah, well, right. Forgive the metaphor, but the incubation was like the orgasm. Right. Okay. Everything else was the buildup, was getting you strong and solid and recovered from the world that has stressed you out and wounded you and getting you and also meeting other patients and reading testimonies and getting really really in um 
trained into what to experience to prepare to go meet the goddess and the goddesses. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, you're becoming attuned. And there's something in that about the kind of um, classic uh, ritual cycle, you know, of the separation from the mundane world, from your everyday life. There has to be a transition there for the healing event or the revelatory event to to occur. And so they spend a lot of time in that transition, preparing you for the peak experience of the incubation. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. And there was no time frame or limit on it. As long or as short as you needed until you were ready, until you were called. This is it. This is the motto of real healing. It takes as long as it takes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and the spirits will answer. So the therapeuts used to watch for what they called a beckoning dream. Not dream. an ordinary dream and not the big dream, mm. but something else that indicates that the divine powers are calling you forward into your incubation experience. Wow, it's like I can imagine you're in the you're in the waiting room and you have to wait until you get the beckoning dream before you can go into the uh, inner sanctuary. Oh, yes, it's great. Yes. Then mm-hmm. finally, when they went into the sanctuary, um, and as we shared earlier, the word clinicos, our word clinic comes from this. The clinicos were actually the couches that the dreamers slept on to receive the big dream. But even before that, when this practice was founded, it was really shamanic. People used to go into caves in the mountains, of course. Mm-hmm. And- so it was a practice that was developed and refined over generations. Yes. So as we said, we know it lasted 2,000 years, and uh, trying to remember my dates, the sanctuaries, the the more classical era sanctuaries that are everybody's picture of ancient Greece in the Asclepian tradition started to be built around 800, 600 BC. So this was going on for 500 years before um, the explosion in the classical era. Hmm. So and also, let's yeah. just finish the process. When mm-hmm. after the dream, which took as long or as short as necessary, then uh, the patient spent times with the therapeuts, um, understanding the dream and what it told them. Very often, enacting the dream, like other cultures around the world that are really sensitive to dreams. Oh, you can't just talk about that. You've got to act it out. Mm. Waking, like you have to embody it. So that often happened. There were often prescriptions given where people had to stay in the sanctuary. Well, you've got a high fever. Uh, you've got to go swim in the frozen river down the mountain three times a day for the next month. For example, uh, paradoxical cures were very common. And he said, modern medicine would say we should never do when we're ill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then anyway, so working mm-hmm. out the healing, doing some of it in the sanctuary, and then taking your leave with a a gifting and a blessing. Um, And also, like you keep pointing out, the important sensitive uh, transition back to that real world that is a stressful, wounding place. So with Mm -hmm. a lot of support and concern. Uh, And leaving gifts behind. Always, uh, the sanctuaries were covered with gifts from very simple terracotta figures um, to, to to buildings and ornate statues. 
And wouldn't uh, people make little effigies of maybe the body part that needed healing? So they would make a little figure or something and bring that as an offering? Yes, I'm looking around, not at you, but because I'm in my study. I have a few of those, but they're downstairs. I can't show you right now. But oh. very commonly, yes, uh, they were called uh, tama, tamata. It's plural. Um, the word means both the votive offering, the thing itself, and the thing that was healed. So we have hundreds, probably thousands of little uh clay figures of people or of legs or hands or oh there's one i remember that's just a wrist with a huge tumor on this bone mm-hmm. that that tumor was cured by asclepius in a sanctuary that did not do any surgery it was purely dream healing. how does that happen well it happens mm. a, a friend and colleague of mine had a monstrous brain tumor that um, he didn't do a Sclepian healing, but he's very spiritual and a poet, and he really worked hard uh, on imaginal healing. And it, he had given up, and everybody had given up on him, and he was scheduled for brain surgery, and that's when it disappeared completely. So it's gone from his body, and medical science can't figure it out. Uh, another amazing healing. I just had a reunion with this gentleman. A man who went on my very first trip had a severe genetic blood disorder called hemochromatosis. It's when the body can't absorb iron. I can't eject the iron. It absorbs so much iron that um, the organs fill up, up with it, and a person usually dies at a young age of cirrhosis. Uh, this gentleman was getting a pint of blood drawn every week to draw the iron-rich blood to keep him alive when we went 25 years ago. He was expected to die within a few years. I'm so happy to tell you and everybody, he had, we say big dreams. He had huge dreams in Greece, (laughs) huge dreams. And he also went on the shamanic path here and, and found the medicine man here and also did vision quests stateside. So he used the Asclepian tradition and the Native American tradition to get the visions that scouts on are uh, healed as hemochromatosis. And again, the medical community doesn't know how this happened. Has never seen it before. It's not in the medical records, but um, he's alive and well. And mm-hmm. he has his blood iron levels checked about once every three or four months just to see if he's still okay. Mm-hmm. So there are miracle healings. Most of the ones that I work with, I have to admit, seem to be, you know, psychosomatic, how our body-mind works together, and it's easier for us to understand that. Um, Nonetheless, I have facilitated um, through this process of what seem to be miraculous healings of physical conditions as well. And I never say it's going to happen, and I can't ever promise it but we can turn ourselves over to the God powers and give them our very best and see how they answer us. Some people also will sometimes do this process with serious conditions that they don't expect to heal, but they're trying to live better with. Mm -hmm. I think of a man who was dying of leukemia who came on the trip and he didn't heal his leukemia, 
but he made peace with his soul and with how he gave himself leukemia by becoming a corporate lawyer when he really wanted to be a crusading for justice street lawyer. So this was the end of his career. And he said, okay, I see what happened. I see how I made myself sick, but I've still got time. I can redeem myself. And he went back to charity work uh, for the rest of his career. So he considered it a healing of his soul, even though his body didn't heal. Mm -hmm. That is sometimes the condition we arrive in. Wow. Well, you know, when you describe the whole process of going to the Esclepion, um, doing the holistic healing, doing the ritual cleansing, you know, inside and out, and then uh, going into the sanctuary to have your healing dream, and then talking to the therapeutic afterwards, you know, the consultation afterwards to uncode the dream maybe or to follow up on the prescription that was given. Um, what I immediately think of is how um, a lot of people now are going to, let's say, ayahuasca centers to receive healing when they haven't been able to find a cure for their psychological or physical ailments out in Western medicine. And what happens generally when you go to a retreat like that is you go through a cleansing process. So you've got a very limited diet for a month before, maybe sometimes shorter, but often up to a month. When you get there, you do uh, ritual cleansing. So bathing in uh, flower water, also vomiting. Um, and then you're ready for the ceremony where you might receive your own healing vision or spontaneous healing. Then afterwards, generally, you'll meet in a group or you'll meet with the shaman, tell him about your visions or tell the group about your visions. Uh, so this is that sharing aspect. And then perhaps some kind of going away, some kind of prescription, what people call integration. How do I integrate that into my everyday life? I just find the parallel so remarkable and also uh, very interesting that if we don't have knowledge and appreciation for this tradition that comes out of Greece, we're missing a huge opportunity um, because going to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca is not for everyone and it may not be the best thing for the Amazon. Uh, but we have access to very similar healing ritual that we can really do anywhere as long as we set up the right conditions and have uh, you know intelligent sensitive gentle guides asclepian like guides um, really uh, we don't need a whole lot in terms of uh, <laughs> right we pretty much need almost nothing yeah. And probably the less we have, the the better it is for that healing process. Like really take things away and keep it really simple and, and Spartan. Yeah. Climb a mountaintop naked and cry to the spirits. That's all <laughs> we need. Um, and I'm profoundly with you that this is like an archetypal roadmap. Mm -hmm. Traditions all over the world use. Um, I have a really simple three-word recipe for what we do spirituality in community yeah but yes gathering with other pilgrims saying there is a, 
compelling need nothing else will address, going on pilgrimage and making sacrifice to do it, arriving at the sanctuary where there are um, experienced healers and you're in a community of others looking for healing and you're drenched in stories of the healings that have happened so that you're programming yourself to go on the journey. And then some form of altered state of consciousness experience, maybe with sacred substances like ayahuasca, um, maybe not. We facilitate intensive um, experiences like this with and without sacred medicines. Uh, And then coming back and integrating it and uh, affirming the identity transformation you've been through and then taking it out into the world as a different person. It is a death rebirth experience. And you're right, both of us are naming the universal roadmap uh, for altered state healing experiences done around the world in numerous uh, indigenous traditions. Mm. Something else, another striking parallel for me is the imagery of the serpent being really central to uh, yogic traditions, the Amazonian plant medicine traditions, and Asclepius. Um, Can you, I thought, you know, when you talk in the book about uh, the role of the serpent, not just as a symbol, you know, the serpent on Asclepius' staff, but how the role of the serpents in the Asclepion, in the healing process. Could you just say a little bit about that, just to bring it to life for people? Yes, sure. Um, Just as we go in search of our totem spirits, so do the deities have their different totem spirits that help them, that represent their traits and energies, and that help them do their work. Uh, we didn't have time for it, but another big experience uh, I had in Greece was, well, meeting a sea turtle on a mountaintop, but we'll save that for another, <laughs> another talk. But again, something that doesn't happen, that we're told can't happen, and it happened. Um, and the, that's a different part of my being. But um, so serpents in the Asclepian. Thank you mm-hmm. for bringing me back. Yeah. So um, Asclepius had three totem animals: the serpent, the dog, and the cock, the rooster. And each one had particular traits. Any one of them might appear, but um, the, the rooster was especially his preferred animal of sacrifice. So people sacrificed roosters for the healing afterwards. And that's about waking up, crowing at dawn, coming from out of the darkness and back into the light. Yeah, Which, I thought I thought actually that they sacrificed the rooster so that they could sleep, so that it wouldn't wake them up out of a healing dream. It's like, no, take care of all the roosters in the vicinity because <laughs> I... <laughs> Uh, maybe and and prepare our uh, meal to come home yeah right we're gonna be hungry after 16 hours in the asclepion (laughs) right we don't commonly eat rooster here but they sure do over in greece and other parts of the world yes yeah okay so the cock um, um, you know so the dog um man's best friend sorry women human's best friend um asclepius is extremely kind and gentle and friendly Uh, And so the dog was one of his messengers in ancient times. The dog was also believed to be a guide to the underworld. Um, And so 
the gut dog could appear to guide us through our underworld and our dream journey. Uh, but especially the snake. Um, in very many dream incubations, including uh, usually, I'd have to count. I could do empirical research, but uh, I do Asclepian readings in Greece when we're doing uh, the incubations. So people will have their own dreams and will record and review them, but I'm also in an altered state receiving visions from Asclepius and then later reporting what I saw Asclepius or whichever power comes uh, to the dreamer. And much of the time, not all the time, but very much of the time in my visions, and especially, of course, in my travelers' visions, they see snakes, they're swallowed by snakes, they have snake encounters, they very, it's common that people see themselves being swallowed by a snake and then changed as they pass through the snake's body and they report feeling it, feeling mm -hmm. themselves change on the cellular level. That happened to the gentleman with hemochromatosis. He had a long dream where he saw himself in the dream. He was being slowly swallowed and digested and changed and could feel his body changing as he was coming through. And then when he got to the belly, he was expelled like a cesarean birth. And when he got out, he said, I'm not done. It's not right. Something's wrong. I got to go back in. And he had to agree to be re-swallowed and then re-digested and then come out the anus. Hmm. So, uh, and these dreams are so vivid. I hope our listeners know that the brain doesn't differentiate between a waking experience and a dream. When we're dreaming, we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So it's right for us to say my soul experienced last night. Um, and again, if we just analyze it, but don't embody it, it's incomplete. So uh, these are very intense, vivid dreams that people wake up from saying, uh, this really happened. It really happened in dream time. It really happened in a, a intrapsychic world. And I feel it. And, and people are also very, very emotional after it quite often um, with full range of emotions. Catharsis happens. Uh, people sometimes will have a very intense catharsis in the middle of the dream that we tend them through. Uh, and then ultimately extraordinary feelings of liberation and healing afterwards. Hmm. And the snake is us usually present and very often the central healing force. Um, and there's so much about the snake. Uh, we both know this. Everybody should know that this. it's only in the Judeo-Christian tradition that the snake was uh, demonized, rendered evil. The rest of the world uh, traditions uh, consider the snake to be uh, benevolent, beneficent, good, carries the earth medicine to us. It's the creature that lives above and below and knows what's going on underneath and, and reunites us with the earth. Yeah, it's, got, it's most chthonic or earthly of creatures because it has no legs. It's not separate from the ground. It's always on the ground. Um, you know, you tell me that uh, vision of the guy who is on your trip. And, uh, you know, I've had a, a similar vision or not even a vision because I was in it. It was happening to me in a Maloka in South America 
during an ayahuasca ritual, um, being swallowed by this serpent and feeling like it was completely cleansing me, doing a cellular regeneration. And then when I came out, I had this remarkable experience of what it would be like to love like Christ, to love unconditionally. Mm. And uh, it was revelatory, but also heartbreaking because I knew that that was inaccessible to myself normally and everybody else, but that that was the end of all conflict is if we could just love unconditionally, like I felt in that moment, completely cleansed of all darkness, (laughs) all shadow uh, for that brief moment, getting that glimpse, which uh, has inspired and tortured me ever since. I got to tell you. I, and I see it in your face and your eyes and you still of course, you still feel it, and it's still a guiding experience for you, even if it's not 100% present like we all wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's also in the, just a footnote. One of the, Another thing I get from the Greek tradition is that they taught we should strive to be excellent and imitate the gods and goddesses, but we can't be them. So don't think you can become a god or be godlike. You can't be perfect, but you can really be excellent. And yeah. I accept that and strive for excellence. And so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like it's not something like I'm like, oh gosh, I got to get back there. But it's given me a kind of uh, a, a marker to strive toward. Yes. Uh, you know, seeing that that really is the answer, and the closer I can get to living that out in my life the better off I'll be and the better off the people around me will be. Amen. Yes. So, but it's a high watermark. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we'll get our teachers that challenge our, the lesson. won't we? <laughs> oh yeah. They show up every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm just recognizing the time and gosh, it's such a, a rich topic. I guess um, let's bring it around now to uh to your latest book that's just been released and it's about vietnam and you've been leading pilgrimages not only to greece but to vietnam taking war veterans back to vietnam and i'm curious what do what do people get from you know especially someone who went to vietnam as a soldier what do they get by returning to the place where that war trauma happened? <sighs> There's so much, and we can spend hours on this as well. Maybe we'll, we'll another time. But briefly, um, so I've led about 22 journeys to Greece, and I've led 19 to Vietnam. I had to become confident in facilitating overseas journeys before I took on going back to Vietnam and doing a war healing journey. So um, I, if I recall, um, I was leading the journeys to Greece for five years uh, before I began leading them to, to Vietnam. That being said, one of the way, best ways to understand what we call post-traumatic stress disorder is that it's frozen war consciousness. The bodies come back from war, but not the soul, not the mind, not the heart. It's still operating as if we're over there. When we return to the places happened, so much can so much can change. One matter is uh, traumatic imagery is so penetrating that it's like burned into the mind, like dinosaur footprint. Hmm. 
And it doesn't change easily on its own. But if we go back where we fought and where we killed and where we destroyed, and we see it's green and it's growing and it's thriving and the people are okay, well, mm. washes away that frozen imagery. That's mm. one matter. A second matter, this is big. Um, we would expect there to be epidemic levels of PTSD and traumatic brain injury in Vietnam because the war was so horrible. We killed 3 million people. We dropped more bombs on that little country than on the entire planet in all of World War II combined. If it were broken brain, everybody in Vietnam would have it. It's not there. It's not there. They don't have chronic wartime post-traumatic stress disorder. Because everything in their culture to mitigate against it. They've got culture and spirituality still intact. Right. Yes. They are living in an archetypal world all the time. Buddha and Kuan Yin and the spirits are everywhere and the ancestors are everywhere. And the most important uh, little structure in everybody's home, even if they're only living under a tarp in the jungle, is an ancestor altar where they know their ancestors of four generations have gathered and they're there to talk to them and to help them. And they do. And it's a living relationship. Uh, And they're Buddhist. They're so loving and so forgiving. So I've been there 19 times and I haven't experienced a single second of anger or enmity toward the United States for the war. None. And they tell our veterans, our veterans are so guilty so grievous, Mm -hmm. so full of moral injury. And the Vietnamese say, "Uh, you're not an American. We're brothers and sisters who survived the same hell. Mm -hmm. They say, from now on and forevermore, Vietnamese and American veterans have to be the same, the lips and tongue of the same mouth telling the same, the world, the same story. That's why this happened. So we could all learn from it and heal each other and teach the world. To be crying out together, anathema. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, They say, when our veterans talk about uh, survivor guilt, they say, please don't feel guilty. It's your karma to be alive and to have survived it. Mm. And it's our karma to survive too. And we don't know, maybe the people who are on the other side have an easier time. We've got to live with it and make sense of it. And we hope they're gone. We hope their souls are at peace. Hmm. They say that. They also say, uh, well, aren't you angry at me for what I came here and did? Oh, no. You were a good warrior doing archetypal. You were a good warrior doing what every warrior is meant to do. Not question the command, but do what his country asks of him. You didn't know the war was wrong. You didn't know you would feel bad. We honor you as really good brother and sister warriors. Hmm. The only people we have any issue with were the politicians and the corporations who sent you here. You didn't know, but they did or they, well, they did, but they, and they should have. So no, we're together that we all went through hell together. And now we're brothers and sisters forever. And there's, they, please forgive me, Americans will say, and the Vietnamese will say, We can't because there's nothing to forgive. We honor you 
for coming here and fighting. What? When do we ever hear messages like that? Mm-hmm. And what about the war? They don't. We call it the Vietnam War. And we lost. We don't, they don't talk like that. They don't talk about winning and beating America. They they call it, they say we restored the peace. Hmm. And they say we reunited our country. That's how we think about it. And and it's true, they love America. The first paragraph of their Declaration of Independence is ours. Ho Chi Minh loved it and took it directly from us. Um, Our country is called Hua Ki. In Vietnamese, it means a beautiful people. Hmm. I once asked, uh, how can you call us that after what we did here? And my friends over there just said, because you are. Hmm. You're beautiful people and we love you. And we know what your real values are and that this war was wrong and tragic for all of us. So I could go on and on, but you get it. And I believe this is a lesson for the whole world. Mm -hmm. There we have a few others, like the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that from South Africa that worked for a while. Tragically, it's backsliding, but for a decade or so, that was a model for the world. There are some others, but these things teach profound healing is possible. Healing even from the worst traumas is possible. Healing between peoples is possible. Letting go of the past and making good karma, as the Vietnamese would say. Oh, you feel bad about what you did while you were here? Well, the answer is simple, my sister and my brother. Well, just spend the rest of your life making good karma. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Make up for it. If you think there was a wrong done, well, there you go. You've got your task. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. what is what? It sounds like there's such a spirit of uh, of brotherhood, and seeing like the world community um, that is remarkable. You would think that these people would be so bitter and resentful, and full of hate. Yeah, doesn't sound like there's any of that. I've never encountered it. Never, never, never. Not for a second. Uh, even people who talk about feeling that way during the war say. It was just during the war. One gentleman, huh, oh my gosh, one of our veterans fell through a porch. She was being goofy, and he fell through a porch and he broke a bone. What, back home? No, no, in Vietnam. In Vietnam. In Vietnam. We found we were in a remote place. A doctor who came to him came in the middle of the night. Oh, on your trip, he, yes, he was messing our, around. On, okay. Yes, on our trip, he was messing around and he fell and he, okay, you got it. Oh. So they're not, those porches aren't built for big Americans. <laughs> way not, no. <laughs> so a doctor came to our hotel in the middle of the night to tend him, took him to a hospital, get x-rays, then came the next two days, made sure to come for three days in a row on the way. And our vet wanted to pay him, and he said, no, you can't. This is my gift to you. What do you mean this is your gift to me? Who are you? Well, I was a Viet Cong doctor during the war. I want you to go home and tell your veteran friends who your doctor was in Vietnam. Hmm. Well, what happened to you during the war that you became Viet Cong? Well, 
your planes dropped a bomb on my home and killed both of my parents. And you became a doctor. Yeah, I couldn't allow hatred to take me over. Did you ever feel it? Yeah, a little bit during the war because you killed both of my parents. And when you're at war, hatred's a good weapon. But I realized pretty quickly that I was only making me sick. And I was a healer. And here I am. I'm your Viet Cong doctor. Yeah. We're brothers. Yeah, that's... They're such beautiful people. We're not talking about governments. We're talking about people. Um, and uh, they, they use the phrase, um, we practice people-to-people diplomacy. <laughs> and then, you know, in the activist community, we say if the people lead, the leaders will follow. Well, we've got to get millions and millions of people to, lead, to be leading this way. But it's possible. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like the lesson here and, and probably the lesson of this new book or one of them is not just for veterans looking to heal from PTSD, but uh, perhaps healing for all of us who live in a traumatizing dominant culture. Um, and yes. I can even see too, like that there's probably lessons for how Canadians and Americans have dealt with indigenous people here. Um, wow. So it sounds like it's a lot bigger than just specifically war veterans. Yes. And I really appreciate you seeing that. Thank you. Um, yeah. We all need to get that. Yeah. Well, and we all need to realize that the whole world is in a condition of war. The, the word war comes from older words from the old German um, and then eventually back to Latin and Greek. But the word means strife. Hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean physical violence. It means any contending forces trying to win by power rather than coming together. So a warrior is one who serves in strife and warriors are meant to protect us from strife and stop the strife, not increase it. So yeah, I'm with you. There are profound lessons for the whole world here. And who was uh, the Greek? Was it Heraclitus who talked about the two fundamental aspects of life being love and strife? Yes. So, you know, just that pairing of opposites, you know, following strife, love is needed. And it sounds like the, the Vietnamese people are just exuding and overflowing with love. That some of that Christ-like unconditional love. Oh, yes. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Uh, I could, we didn't have time now, but just to let everybody know, we could report big dreams and profound, spontaneous healings from Vietnam, as we've been reporting from the Greek tradition and others that happens there too. And because it is such a profoundly loving people and culture, and the archetypal presence is everywhere, because uh, Buddha. Mm-hmm. Buddha, 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 and everything about Buddhism and Quan Am. Um, yeah. We're drenched in love and goodness, and it talk about good medicine for our wounds. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned how, um, you know, kind of the contemporary view of PTSD is that it's about broken minds or fixing the brain chemistry. But 
what you've been finding is that it's really, we need to mend the broken hearts and we can only do that through love and brother brotherhood, community, connection to soul and spirit, which has nothing to do with brain chemistry. If anything, brain chemistry is a result of all of those things being in place. Yes, yes, yes. And if we put all those things in place, our brains will also heal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ed, this has been so good. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. And so hopefully, uh, after your next book comes out in 2022, which is a continuation of your work on Asclepian dream healing, which I cannot wait for. Hopefully, when that is nearing release or after it's released, you can come back and we can pick up this conversation because, uh, there's, there's so much there for everyone, I think, listening. Thank you so much. Uh, it's also a joy to connect with you and to be in the archetypal world that we both love and share and serve. So I'd be happy to come back and meet with you again. Yeah. When we're in that space and we're having these conversations, it, like time doesn't exist. And so right. I look at my clock, I go, oh, my God, it's been two hours. This is like the longest podcast i've done in a while so i appreciate all the time uh you've offered us and uh i'll, I'll uh, send everyone to your website where they can find out about um your you have an audio program on uh trauma and war through sounds true that is just wonderful it's actually you you reading which is great because I, I love your old school Bronx accent, you know, it's, oh, thank uh, we, you. <laughs> I love it. I have a friend who's from uh, Fort Apache grew up in the forties and fifties. And uh, I, I love listening to him and he's got a real kind of no BS direct quality to him that uh, it's great. you want to hear my real voice <laughs> next, next time we do the interview i'll talk like this with you <laughs> oh, i love it it's music to this canadian's ears um so i'm going to send everyone to your website and you've got so much material there and you've written like uh, at least three or four books on war and PTSD. And uh, I know Peter Levine thinks really highly of your work. And so if people know him and respect him. Well, he says that you're one of the masters and, uh, you know, it's a good recommendation. Uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to Peter for that. His work is so important and to be blessed by one of our teachers is a great honor. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll see you down the road, Ed, and someday... God's willing, I'll meet you in Greece. Ah, uh, oh, would we dance with the gods and goddesses together? <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. Yeah. You're the best. Well, thanks again, and we'll You're talk so soon. Welcome. It was a delight. Thank you, Brian, and I'll watch for you down the road. Take care. You too. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory. Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, aka Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet, 
on the medicine path. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.